Hello and welcome to Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. And more specifically, welcome to Suite 212, a programme which puts the arts in a social, political and cultural context. Your usual host, the splendid Juliet Jakes, is currently somewhere between Kiev and Tbilisi. Perhaps she'll tell you about it on a return. If you're listening, Juliet, bon voyage. So instead you've got me, Tom Overton, at TW underscore Overton on Twitter. This is a sort of trial run for Sweet 212 going weekly in the autumn with an expanded hosting team. Today's programme is on the theme of contemporary literary translation into English and it's inspired by the amazing, under-recognised life and work of the translator and writer Anya Berger, who died at the end of February. Her work and her politics were directed at the possibility of a different future as much as the past, so shortly, we're going to be hearing from two translators and writers currently producing work, which I think is important and interesting now. I'm going to be talking to the current translator and resident at the British Library, Jen Kaleha, and to the Professor of Political Aesthetics at Birkbeck University of London, Esther Leslie. I'm going to ask them about their own work, the state of the art of translation in general, and any recommendations they have for things we should be reading or going to. But first, an introduction to Anya Berger. I came across Anya's work because I'm currently writing the biography of the artist and writer John Berger. If you look up John Berger's collaborative TV series Ways of Seeing on YouTube, you can see and hear Anya at the end of the second episode talking uh, about the politics of the male gaze and the female nude in Western art history. It was her activism with women's liberation which framed the feminism of that episode and her work translating Walter Benjamin which gave the entire series its intellectual backbone. That backbone is Benjamin's essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which argues that the ability to make copies of artworks is potentially a revolutionary tool. Anya and John Berger were together for around 15 years and had two children, and it was her experience which formed what was to become the central theme of his work, Exile or Migration. Anya's father was from a wealthy Russian landowning family. Her mother and her older siblings had fled the 1917 revolution to stay with their Viennese Jewish family before they moved to China, where Anya was born in 1923. Later, when they heard that she was developing a stutter, Anya's grandparents consulted their upstairs neighbour, who happened to be Dr Sigmund Freud. He suggested that she just spoke Russian for the moment and she was cured. Later, her unique transnational upbringing and her ability to learn languages... Russian, German, French, English, some Polish and some Serbo-Croat made her career. The family returned to Vienna in the 1930s and following the Anschluss, Anya found herself in the crowd for Hitler and Goebbels' 1938 speech announcing reunification with Germany. She escaped to England on her own, attended St Paul's School in London and won a scholarship to Oxford to study modern languages. She met her first husband, Stephen Bostock, uh, there as well. Anya is an affectionate Russian version of Anna, and so you might see her on title pages as Anna Bostock in some of her translations. In collaboration with John Berger, Anya translated Bertolt Brecht's poems on the theatre, and in 1970, Amy Cezaire's poetic exploration of po post-colonial black identity returned to my native land. That translation work had an immediate effect on John. When he won the Booker Prize in 1972, he found out the money could be traced back to centuries of colonial exploitation of the Caribbean, so he shared the winnings with the London chapter of the Black Panthers. That Césaire translation had a far broader impact than that, though. I recently heard from the actor Ed Caesar about discovering the translation in the profoundly racist environment of Leeds in the 1970s uh, and how that changed the course of his life as a young black man. But it's important to recognise that Anya's work extends well beyond her relationship with John. Anya also translated the collection of Walter Benjamin's essays published as Understanding Brecht, which is still av available from Verso Books. She worked for the Russian monitoring service of the BBC, reviewed books for The Guardian, and wrote for the New Left Review and the feminist journal Spare Rib. She translated works on design by Le Corbusier and political and aesthetic theory by Marx, Lenin, Ernst Fischer and Georg Lukacs. She also had a long translation career at the UN and New York and Geneva, making good use of those six languages. You can find out more about her in a couple of articles uh, on the website of the art magazine Freeze. Uh, I'll try to send them out from the show's Twitter account after the broadcast. That is at sweet underscore 212, by the way. You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM, and now at last you're going to be listening to a difficult, different voice. 
you know, in a difficult voice. <laughs> uh, be not more difficult than mine. I want now to move on to my first guest, Esther Leslie. Uh, Esther is a professor of political aesthetics at Birkbeck University of London. She writes on a range of topics, including film, animation, colour, liquid crystals, avant-garde artistic production and Marxist theory, and has translated some of the same authors that Anya worked on, which seemed like a good place to start. Um, Esther... Walter Benjamin was, among other things, a writer about translation and a translator, and you're both a translator of Walter Benjamin and a critical writer about him. Uh, just to set us up for the rest of the show, could you give us a quick outline on Benjamin's thinking on translation? It's hard to do a, a quick outline, um, because I, I think his essay from 1923, The Task of the Translator, is probably one of his more... Um, hermetic texts, shall we say, but I think there are things that one can usefully take from it, maybe for this discussion. But first to say, Benjamin was a translator throughout his life, so he began quite young with translations of um, Baudelaire, and, and this is something that recurred, in a sense, his relationship to Baudelaire and its translation from French into German and the relationship of his translations to those by others, such as Stefan Georga, Stefan Zweig, and so on. Um, he also translated um, Breton, Tristan Zara, um, when he was in, involved with avant-garde groupings in the 20s and so on, and did some monumental work of translation with Franz Hessel on uh, Proust's In Search of Lost Time. But um, in terms of his theory of translation, it, it's quite curious in a sense in that it, it all revolves around this idea that translate... If we accept, as he argues, that an artwork or a piece of writing is not written for a reader, then we should accept that translation is not the communication of content from or meaning from one language into another in order to benefit a reader. He doesn't want to think of it that way. He wants to think of um, all works as relating to something he calls pure language. Um, so there, there's, it, 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 there's some sort of articulation that in a way that language is doing something other than just communicating meaning so what interests him is the way in which it communicates so he gives a famous example of the word for bread in German brought being very different in sort of meaning and articulation or in, in its sensibility from the French word pain for bread so he doesn't see there as being a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence and yet both of the both of these words relate to something that we might, in our different ways, understand as bread. And he has this very complicated theory as to how the translation, in a sense, releases that. And what I find most interesting in it is the sense in which he thinks a translation should not try to slip unnoticed uh, into the world so you know that kind of compliment of the translation oh you wouldn't even realize it's translated it's you know it flows so well he wants it to be abrasive and for the foreignness of um of a word to or, or its alienness or its otherness to somehow be contained i suppose within the translation so he's quite interested i suppose in words that are stumbling blocks that that don't translate or translate imperfectly or you know one one sees that I suppose in the rash of kind of translation of theory not unlike Benjamin's own theory where one makes up these funny sort of um, phrases in order to convey something you know being in otherness or which jar in a way in the language and I think for Benjamin that holds on to something about both the a certain kind of impossibility of just straight translation from one meaning to another, but it also holds open for him this space in which all translations um, are trying to lead us back to something that's called a pure language or an originary language, which um, in a mystical way, one might say, is a language of God or something, but it, it exists prior to its its various articulations or simultaneous to. Mm. But 
I know it's not a very no, no, easy not, right. thing to. And what, what's your what's your experience of translating him being being? Um, various, I I suppose, in the sense that I think in in some ways, you know, it raises all those questions about whether you you know translate Benjamin into the present and into present sort of idiom or whether and, and I think in a way I did always I have always wanted to hold on to something that sort of remains foreign within the articulation which for me seemed to suggest a mode of of communing with that text but bringing it into the present he has a lovely image about how a sort of straight regular translation builds a wall it's opaque you you can't see the text behind it it's just this this solidity whereas a um the sort of translation he has in mind is an arcade and the arcade is of course an image that and an idea that recurs throughout his writing so that arcade allows you to see at one end the translated text seeing through to that which has been translated. And I suppose in some ways I think, and maybe it's just my own inarticulacy or insecurity um, in in terms of understanding uh, the language I'm translating from, I don't know, but I, I like to hold to that sense in which there is a, a certain alienness which sheds a light on what what I encountered um, in in my version of translation that I think that the time I was most pressed was in translating a book called Walter Benjamin's Archive, um, which was a collection of fragments and strange oddities from the archive, one of which was um, this collection of words that his son. Stefan had coined mainly made up words coined in a kind of German um, I suppose but not strictly German because these are children's inventions that are full of connotation uh, and trying to communicate something of the sense of those in English when they're not actually actual words but trying to see if puns work across languages or all of that kind of work I think is one of the times when I was directly sort of translating a foreignness into another kind of foreignness and that was probably one of the most um, difficult. Can you can you make uh, multilingual puns? <laughs> well yeah this is the question it reminds me of sort of Freud and the notion of the glance and the gloss and the you know everything sort of collapsing between French, English, German and that being right at the, the heart of the notion of fetishism I think uh, one can potentially. <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> Go, Not pull, right now. Pulling back to um, you talking about, about origins how did you get started as a translator what was your um, beginnings. My beginnings were with a, a very small journal that my parents were involved in called Revolutionary History, which was a small group of British Trotskyists who were very keen to convey uh, mainly European, but also Vietnamese and other um, work from the Trotskyist archives into English. And I think the first piece I translated was um, Willy Brandt, who went on to become uh, uh, Chancellor of Germany, where in the 30s he was fighting in the Spanish Civil War and he wrote this um, uh, diary from the front in Spain, I think, and he was involved with the Trotskyist grouping. And so that was one of the first pieces I translated. So it had a very direct kind of political um, end, I suppose. And I, I think out of that then it was just being around the circles of uh, New Left Review and Verso where still, I suppose in the early 90s, there was still that sense in which there's all this material in Europe, you know, there's untranslated Lukács, untranslated Benjamin, um, Adorno and, and so on. These things need to come into English to um, invigorate debates so I think it was really just you know for, for me I suppose translation is tied up with the sense of um, 
uh, a political task or an enrichment of of the debates that we mm. can have. What so within the period you've been translating, uh, what kind of changes do you think have happened in the? Uh, what's different now that um, wasn't the case when you started in the mm. sort of. I don't, well, I don't know. I was thinking about Anya Berger and thinking about how the world of translation that she was involved in, so translating Trotsky, Lukács, Brecht, Benjamin, Ernst Fischer, all these people, I've been mean, through those translations, but also through my own work. These were exactly the same reference points that, you know, I had and I alighted on and I wanted in not just the translations but the ideas as well to convey into English and English-speaking uh, world and uh, and I suppose I was thinking that somehow today you know is that work sort of done you know that or, or our reference points would maybe be more globalized now we might recognize that as in some ways quite a circumscribed set of references or but I, I don't think they've become invalidated at all but I think there's probably a broader perspective in terms of what what has been missed mm. and has not come into English and also what what is happening now and might fruitfully enrich the debate so I suppose there's a kind of shift of of focus and mm. may, maybe you know those where we might turn to look for things has has shifted in some ways yeah I suppose there's a sort of gesturing towards that with translating Césaire mm. um but that yeah and I suppose it, it was really interesting to to talk to people who had been influenced by that translation but um so you, you had come across translations by by Anna Bostock could have in the wild. Uh. In the wild, yeah. I, I, I suppose I was unaware, in a sense. For example, Trotsky's 1905. You know, that was a book that was long around, around about my person. But I, I never thought about who translated this. You know, mm. and that's the other th thing. You know, if it's a language that you don't know, you don't know how to speak. That, you know, that Trotsky. That is just. Trotsky and mm. I didn't think about that process of translation at all until you know starting to do my own sort of work conveying say Lukács which was a Lukács I translated which had already been translated from Hungarian into German I put it into English um, and that weird responsibility when you see that quoted somewhere and someone says Lukács writes this mm. and then you think no no that was me actually who wrote that and then you get this terror yeah. did I actually really get that did I convey that correctly I, yeah that, that's I think that's a really good point to move on to the sort of second movement of the show um you're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM uh and to Suite 212 um it's as Esther was just saying it's it's typical of the way that translation was treated in the 20th century um, and before that so few people knew about the work of the translator and writer Anya Berger before she died last month or um, at least celebrated it publicly. There's a particular irony to this, maybe given how frequently um, the TV series Ways of Seeing, which she helped shape, still comes up in discussions of female visibility. But at least from the perspective of a layman like me, uh, Anya's death happens at a moment when the conditions she worked under are being questioned. Uh, one shorthand for this is uh, questioning is a while ago, a couple of years ago, the social media hashtag name the translator. Uh, and last year, Emily Wilson's was the first translation of the Odyssey to be published by a woman. In her translation, translator's note, um, Wilson argues that the gendered metaphor of the faithful translation, whose worth is always secondary to that of a male authored original, acquires a particular edge in the context of a translation by a woman of the Odyssey, a poem that is deeply invested in female fidelity and male dominance. Wilson also argues that, like many contemporary translation theorists, I believe that we need to rethink the terms in which we talk about translation, arguing for a greater recognition that translations are interpretations and entirely different texts from the originals. Largely, this seems to have been recognised in the reviews of Wilson's translation. 
More recently, the translator Daniel Hahn has established the TA First Translation Prize, I think that's the name, uh, for debut literary translations published in the UK. Uh, the first one has just been won by Bela Shaevich's translation of Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich, published by Fitzgeraldo Editions. Fitzgeraldo also recently published Kate Briggs's This Little Art, an essay on translation which makes a strong argument for its expansiveness and importance as a pursuit. I want to talk next to Jen Kalea, who is um, at Newview at Twitter. That's, N, that's at N-I-E-W-V-I-E-W, I think we need really. I thought it was really clever at the time, but thinking back on she, she's a writer, poet and musician and a translator of fiction, non-fiction and poetry from German into English. She has been, among other things, a translator at the Austrian Cultural Forum and is currently translator residence at the British Library, uh, which is an interesting place to start. What's involved with being translator in residence at the British Library? Um, so mine is the very first residency for a translator and uh, my residency is just coming to an end and uh, the confusing aspect about the residency is it involves no translation so um, the residency is a kind of front-facing role um, at its core it's a triumph for the visibility of the translator so really it's one of um, the big kind of endpoints of this these massive um, aims to get translators recognized literary translators recognized um, but on a lower level, it involves doing an events programme, working in the archives of translators, um, talking to the staff at the British Library, because the British Library is very proud of how multilingual its staff are, so visiting staff and talking to them about their official translatory roles, but also the kind of unofficial and invisible translation that happens just because people happen to speak languages and can jump in and do... Um, work that otherwise wouldn't be able to happen if they weren't there um, so I've been quite lucky being the first one that I've kind of had free reign um, so yeah it's been a really amazing opportunity Got to shape it, if I got this right, your most recently published translation is a collection of essays by the filmmaker Vin Vendors, which has just come out with Faber yes. so, um, but I saw on your website that you've actually got another three books coming out in the next year is by my count which may or may not be right uh could you tell us a little about those uh yeah so um well i'm at the i'm currently translating a book um called the pine islands which is by uh the german prize uh shortlisted author marianne poschmann which is the story of a german academic researcher who has a nervous breakdown and runs off to japan um so that will come out next year um, I've just finished translating a surreal Swiss novel by um, the Swiss author Michelle Steinbeck, which is called, um, has an amazing title, My Father Was a Man on Land and a Whale in the Water, which is a very strange um, story that begins with the main character accidentally killing a child and then stuffing it in a suitcase and then trying to take it to her father who lives on a desert island but the child's not really dead. Sometimes it comes back to life. Um, but that's really amazing. And I went and I went to Rome where Michelle Steinbeck was in residence and we worked on my translation kind of in a collaborative sense and became very good friends, um, which um, isn't what people expect a kind of translator relationship to be with an author. Um, and then I'm also translating the autobiography slash tour diary of Marlene Amada, who was the guitarist in Kleenex and Lilliput, um, which will be coming out on an independent American publisher. Um, so, yeah, three three women, three books on the go. Um, but, yeah, I, I can barely keep up with what I'm doing <laughs> at the moment. Um, you're also a published poet, uh, and I saw that you were working on a novella um, during your stay on a different residency in Zurich. Um, this is one of the this is one of the great things about having both you, you and Esther in today because you're, you're both writers and translators, so you kind of come at um, this from from the two angles, uh, the, the blurring of the idea of translation, quote unquote, and original work, quote unquote. How how do you think about the relationship between? It would be interesting to hear from both of you on this, but um, how do you think about the relationship between those two? Yeah, I think um, because I started 
as a writer first. So I've, I've been writing fiction and poetry since I was about 16 or 17. I then kind of left home at 18 as soon as possible and moved to Munich. Basically spent a week, uh, a year, um, just going to kind of punk shows um, and trying to improve my German. I'd gone to a school that had tried to cancel languages halfway through my A-levels um, and I was the only person in my whole school that did languages post-16, so I spent two years doing French and German in kind of a stationary cupboard with these poor <laughs> overworked teachers who, you know, tried their best, but, they, you know, it was very hard for them. So I went to Munich. Um, I arrived with terrible German, left with OK German. I then went to Goldsmiths and studied media and modern literature of creative writing and started just trying to read German novels. Um, so the first novel took six months to get through the dictionary, then it got easier, and I basically taught myself advanced German by reading German novels. I didn't do a degree, um, I didn't go on any courses, I don't have formal qualifications in German. Um, and the, when I ended up doing an MA in German studies, um, the final module was translation theory and practice and suddenly learned about this miraculous thing called literary translation and that, that, that was actually someone's job is translating literature um, and I, I was reading a novel by an author called Joachim Meyerhoff who's somebody that I hope to translate one day um, I've translated bits and bobs of his work and I had this desperate feeling of wanting to share his work so I just started kind of live translating to a friend passages from this book um, and then I started trying to write or translate his um, part of this novel that I was reading and so I've I've come from this writing to translating background and this has informed my way of viewing translation as it being a form of constrained right creative writing so you know whereas you might try and write poetry or fiction or a dramatic monologue with certain stipulations about what your confine your confines are on, on that piece. I see translation as uh, a creative piece, creative a piece of creative writing, like any of my other pieces. But it just so happens I'm working from a text that is in a foreign language mm. because I'm using exactly the same skills mm. that I'm using when I'm doing my own writing. But it's in dialogue and in referencing to somebody who happened to have actually already written the story. So I don't... Danny Hahn actually was talking about this at um, the event last night that I was chairing um, near Brick Lane, which was about his prize, the first trans translation prize, um, where he said that really... I think he was quoting Gregory Rabassa, who said that translation is the only form of pure writing because you don't have to worry about plot or storyline or characters, you just have to worry about the writing. Um, yeah, so that that's the way I view it. It's, it's just another form of almost a genre of, of creative writing mm. for me. I like that idea of the constraint. Mm. Um, how does that square with your, um, your relative experience? I think for me... It's, Sorry, Esther. <laughs> I... I um, I feel really ambivalent about translation in that I, I get anxious and I sort of, I, I hate doing it. So every time one of these propositions comes round, so I translated um, Benjamin on uh, photography um, and then there was a storyteller collection which I did with um, two others, Sebastian uh, Trusilaski and um, Sam Dolbert. I always feel, I feel quite sort of sick and anxious at, at at the the prospect of it but then at the same time I also feel that it um it it makes me a better reader uh, somehow I see and I you know I've always been sort of very selective it has been largely Benjamin that I've translated and some Adorno and Marcuse and so on it forced me to read it more closely than I might be inclined to and to ingest it in some sort of way. And then I think the translation that happens for me is um, this mad idea that having somehow taken it into myself and re-articulated it, it then re-articulates itself in my own 
um, written mm. work. So when I was translating Walter Benjamin's archive, at the same time I was writing a short biography of Benjamin for reaction books and you know it was infusing what I was writing but I suppose for me the more interesting process is when it articulates itself say in my sense of synthetic dyes or liquid crystals that somehow there's this this sort of ling linguistic Benjamin that settled in me that I've re-articulated and then it takes on lives in my books but also you know I always balk at the prospect of doing translation but then I imagine someone else doing it and I just feel <laughs> no this cannot happen so it gets me closer to my literary idol in some way. <laughs> well that um, before I go, go on to the next point that um, what you say about um, doing a translation sort of um submerging and then re, uh re, well going down and then and then re-emerging in in a writing uh because we were talking about John Berger earlier it's uh his poetry reads although he writes in English reads almost as though it's been translated because he has read so much poetry translated into English and it mm. affects the rhythms and the language of, of the way that he writes in quite an interesting That's way. true people often say my uh, and not as a compliment the the way I write sounds like German in sort of ridiculously long sentences with um, yeah the whole I, I clauses. I the same thing with um, I think when you um, when you've been a translator as well you become so hyper aware of English and um, I think in, in my own poetry as well I, I have such a kind of small vocabulary and I think that comes from reading a lot of German and um, wanting this kind of very solid um, simplified, powerful sentence structure. So I, I feel uncomfortable if anything gets too flowery in my own writing, which I think comes from German. Do you only write poetry in English, or do you write poetry in German as well? Sorry, this, this is the gen. Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a bilingual German English speaker. So the 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 general thing is that you. I mean, most people feel comfortable speak, kind of writing in the language that they're most comfortable in. So I, one day I'd love to try and write in German, but that would be something very different to writing in, in, in you know, in English, which is what I grew up speaking. So right. I only write in English. Um, the just Esther, as you, as you were talking about um, Benjamin and sort of his. Uh, Reflections on technology at the point uh, in history in which he was living. I wonder what we can say about how translation is being affected by the technology which is available to us now. Um, I mean, that's kind of open to you both, really. Kind of like, what what difference does it make doing literary translation in, in the the era of the internet? There are all sorts of. Um, more or less frivolous, more or less serious kind of apps and things that some of which I've seen the claim made about them that they, in a sense, enact Benjamin's theory of translation. Benjamin says you should only translate words and not sentences because this helps you to sort of, uh, I suppose, work at this this granular level of which might get you back to pure language rather than trying to slip things and slide things into the the flow of um, the target language and so on. And this is sometimes the way in which these apps work or these digital translation tools. And as I was playing with some earlier today where you, you, you send a phrase backwards and forwards between languages until it reaches this point of equivalence, which is often a kind of gobbledygook but um reads yeah retains the foreignness in a sense the or, or or its lack of sitting comfortably in the new language or in the target language that might be part of what benjamin's proposition is but i mean in professional terms i suppose jen would have a a lot more to say about this this kind of new horizon of, of digital and machinic translation. Yeah, I think um, there's been so many articles written in the last few years about, you know, will will Google Translate or will machine translation replace the literary translator um, or, you know, any translator? And um, 
these these are great tools for literary translators. So I use Google Translate because um, it can search the entire internet for you and find instances where certain phrases or certain modes of speech have already been translated and they sit side by side somewhere on the internet and then Google Translate finds it and hooks it up for you and then you can... It's very... It's like a living dictionary almost. But for people that don't have a grasp of the foreign language, I think it can give people a little too much confidence in that in its abilities um and it it doesn't understand necessarily the relationship between sentences or even words so that's why um it can't replace a human because humans can actually you know they they have abilities to notice nuance and the very subtle meanings that words have that aren't that don't exist in a dictionary so you know often um, people who don't understand translation might look up a word and say, oh, well, you've translated this like this, but in the dictionary it says this. But we know that, you know, there are so many subtle differences between words and that's why there's not just one word for word option in translation because we have so many words, for, for instance, the word friend. We have so many words, you know, mate, pal, um, and you would use these words in very specific contexts and, you know, machines don't understand necessarily why you wouldn't call your boss pal. It, it, it'll probably throw it in a sentence and you'll very confidently use this foreign sentence that you found in Google Translate, but the machine doesn't understand human interaction and the history of, of words, basically. Mm. Although those things might be programmable in a sense or those all of those parameters and all of those contexts can you know be written in I suppose all of social etiquette and rules could become a possible command. I mean these things also change so quickly and another thing is yeah understanding subtlety and sarcasm and and other things that again perhaps only a human would ever really know and um, and also Maybe the machine would be able to understand it at the sentence level, but would it be, un un be able to understand it at the chapter level or the whole book level and how all those sentences join up together um, to form a narrative? Mm. One, of, one of the things Benjamin talks about in his work on translation is the afterlife of texts and, and the way in which the original text or piece of writing changes over time so it gets inflected and reinflected and um rises in value and falls in value it's it's not like a single static entity that's forever frozen in the moment of its making and translation is one of the ways in which afterlife is gained and in a sense it's a sort of argument for a, a permanent retranslation and re-evaluation so i i think that you know, how would one factor that historical movement and and historical inflections into something like the the programmed translation? You know, I think mm. that's also part part of it. Like as you were talking about, you know, the Odyssey for the mm. contemporary age and whether that that interesting way in which it it's the original text and it's a new text. It's it's done something to it and and through it that's very very complex and it's not, you know not easy to encapsulate what that is yeah one of the <clears throat> the sort of interesting points that um that wilson makes in that introduction is is that we have this inherited idea that um homer should sound like a like a victorian maybe or kind of that there should be this grandiosity to it and one of the the points of her translation was to give it give it back some of the kind of immediacy uh, that the, the text has um and you end up with i think one of the you end up with very sort of strange, arresting moments. Like there's a, there's a moment where she um, talks about canapes being handed out, which is <laughs> which is really really sort of striking. Um, I, I, I know that you also sort of uh, admire that translation. I'm just gonna... nodding furiously. Yeah. Yeah, I'm nodding furiously. Um, yeah, well, I Sorry, think. Sorry, this is Jen. Um, yeah, that's me. Um, I think. Um, yeah, what you were saying, Esther, about um, the idea of the afterlife, and I think this is a, a really amazing moment where. Um, theory and reality meet because it's this idea of you know in a 
in an ideal world, it would be amazing to have, say, hundreds of translations of the same text because you could see the different uh, voices and thought processes that each individual translator has and how that can only, um, you know, improve almost improve upon the original text because you could see every reading, every possible nuance, every subtlety, and you could have a new translation every year and you would see how society and culture has changed and therefore that would then change how the translation would. But in reality, um, due to copyright and uh, money, um, you know, frequently a book will only ever have one translation in centuries. I mean, the Odyssey is something different because it's... Um, such a well-known, prestigious text that everybody has wanted to translate. So I think hers is the first translation out of over 60 translations all previously done by men. Um, and I think what's really interesting about Emily Wilson's translation is suddenly everyone obviously kind of went for her and said, oh, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't tamper with this text and you shouldn't make it PC because, you know, there are dramatic changes in her translation. And um, she has this amazing retort, which is, oh, I haven't made it PC, I've just removed the misogyny. Mm. Because there's this belief, because over time, a number of translations have automatically used quite misogynistic language with regards to women in the text, with regards to women's actions, um, the kind of slave women that are in the text. Um, everyone's assumed that that's in the original, but she has really cleverly, in a number of articles and in a number of events and I saw her speak in London she points out that you know these really derogatory terms for women they're not in the original at all and these are actually due to the the kind of patriarchal position of these male translators who have who have um due to their own kind of perspective have twisted what's in the original text mm. um so yeah it's just so exciting that mm. this has happened really the, the other the other text I mentioned at the um, in the beginning of this section was the Kate Briggs book um, this little art have you do you have any thoughts on that yeah I mean I've read it have you read, read it um, again Kate Briggs um, yeah I mean she has I mean potentially again changed the whole landscape of, of translation that sounds really massive but um, yeah Fitzcrowder editions published her book and it's a kind of part memoir part essay on um the life um and role of literary translators through the ages but also she's uh roland Barthes' translator and has translated a number of his works and it's this mixture of um you know her being a mother her everyday practices as um you know going to a dance class teaching um walking down the same streets as Bart had walked um, on and where he'd lived, um, and also exploring, say, Thomas Mann's translator, Helen Lowe Porter. And that's the, the title of this little art is actually a quote from Thomas Mann's translator who uh, wrote quite um, gushing letters to him and, you know, really wanted to do her best to get him into the English language. And she, over time, has received a lot of criticism for her translations because they're, you know not perfect in the sense that there are mistakes etc but she was working on a long, under a lot of pressure but she referred to her own practice as a literary translator as this little art very modest and um, Kate Briggs explores this dynamic um, you know does the translator always have to be at the kind of lower end of the scale compared to where the author sits this idea of the author is the genius and the translator is just this kind of um machine or assistant that is just creating these texts and you know does the literary translator owe the author anything really and all these things but it's just a brilliant text that explores in very eloquent language what a literary translator does and um she gave a talk at the Whitechapel gallery a couple of weeks ago um connecting translation and alchemy mm. which was a really amazing connection because um you know there's this there's this idea that well, often literary translators are have are under a lot of pressure to not make mistakes, and frequently in reviews, translations get picked apart quite, um, you know, quite aggressively. And uh, the this idea of the alchemist who is tr striving to, you know, um, 
find this perfect thing that will never happen and you mm. know is impossible is a is a perfect comparison to the two translation because it is all about the process and mm. that this perfect translation doesn't really exist um but it doesn't mean that you don't try and you know maybe at the end you just have an interesting chemical that might make a lot of people happy and in, mm. in its kind of miraculousness but you the finding the perfect translation it's kind of impossible so why worry about it mm. which is kind of how i feel and this is just me personally it's i think it's uh, to prevent that anxiety of perfection um i often think of it as my aim is to act as a storyteller and mm. to think of the general reader i think you know nabokov wanted had this idea of like translation should have reams of footnotes more footnotes than text um and to me that is a that's an amazing idea an amazing concept but possibly that's for the university or that's for the student that's for the the library setting um mm. for study forever for kind of like an archive but the book that you pick up in a shop and you know i i translate books that you buy in a in a shop for, for the general reader or the literary interested reader you know they want to be able to read a text and be absorbed by that text. So mm. I'm a storyteller. I can only use the vocabulary at my disposal and my own enthusiasm. And, you know, I work late in the night and early in the morning to share stories. And mm. um, for me, I can't separate my life and who I am and where I sit um, as a, you know, as a writer and a worker from translation basically mm. that idea of, of trans literary translation as alchemical seemed very Esther Leslie to me <laughs> yeah although I was thinking much more prosaic thoughts about perf perfection you know that uh, if only you know my fear is is, is the error and I, I came across a thing I was the, the other day where um, I was looking at uh, uh, one of Benjamin's radio scripts and it, it has the notion of the Osterhase in it, and it was translated in the thing I was reading as the Easter Bunny. And then I realised or remembered that I had translated this in something I'd written where Benjamin had mentioned this figure before as the Easter Hare, of course completely missing the idiom, and then got into it, but then thought, but... But actually, you know, Easter Bunny sets off all sorts of weird associations and Easter hare, you know, it is literally a hare. And then I started looking at, you know, the fact that it is a German mythological figure and it was a hare. And so I started to re-justify my choice again. But, you know, that I suppose that's the, the anxious edge <laughs> I'm always sort of working on, that, that which, you, which, which evades you through hyperliteralness and that's where I'm comforted that Benjamin says a translation should be literal because that holds on to the foreignness but you know it is interesting if you say Easter Bunny or if you say Easter Hare but very different resonances you know a perfectly sort of topical <laughs> seasonal reference there. Yes. <laughs> also I suppose it's interesting how that sits against um the sort of different sort of region, you know, different regional flora and fauna. The way <laughs> they might be more aware of certain animals in certain contexts. Um, that should, the, before I move on the next bit, the the Kate Briggs book really reminded me of uh, Helen DeWitt. Um, the way that she talks about translation and design and kind of like the idea of, I mean, she she's this wonderfully um, sort of polylingual one is that <laughs> multilingual multilingual sounds great yeah polylingual sounds great but she is very sort of um, impatient with the fact that um, so many people especially kind of uh, in English are so bound in one language and she sort of thinks of them as being vi victims of bad design in, in, in a way which is quite interesting um, but Thanks for staying with us. You're listening to Sweet 212, a show which puts, their art, puts the arts in their social, cultural and political context on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Tom Overton. Uh, the starting, points of today's starting point of today's show was the work of the writer and translator Anya Berger, who died last month. She appears on some of her translations as Anna Bostock. Um, one of the reasons I thought it would be an interesting subject is uh, to compare the conditions of sometimes near indiv invisibility under which Anya worked and the state of the art today. Um, 
and I think we've we've done that quite interestingly. Um, just as a general question to everyone, uh, what what do you think uh, we should be? Re- what what would you in the last sort of couple the couple of minutes seconds? What would you recommend that we haven't uh, already talked about to to be reading, or is there anything that we haven't covered? <laughs> you think like to announce the, the reader <laughs> translated literature? Yeah. I'm assuming. Or on the subject. Well, I think. What springs to mind are publishers that are really focusing on translated literature. Publishing translated literature is a hard job, mm. um, you know, arguably harder than publishing something that's originally in English because you have to get funding to pay a translator. It's this additional massive cost. And then there's still a, a huge number of readers. Um, being in a bubble, you forget it, but a huge number of readers who would say, oh, translated literature is hard, or I don't read translated literature or translated literature think, makes people think of the classics, not contemporary living literature. So I would say read Tilted Access Press's publications, Fitzcrowder editions, really dedicated to translated literature uh, and other stories. Um, yeah, there are just so many that um, put out a great roster and they're working so hard to concentrate on translated literature. Any suggestions? Um, I... I don't know. I think there are all sorts of things, despite having said that I thought may- maybe our our eyes would turn away from the European tradition and go further afield. But I, I still think there are really interesting and good things that are yet to make it into English. And, and so and I'm always intrigued by those projects that were sort of promised and then never happened, like the subsequent volumes of Peter Weiss's... Um, aesthetics of resistance or you know that there are things like Enzensberger in German um, short summer of anarchy that never made it into English and so you know I think there are these little holes and one of the ways in which people have tried to get these things uh, translated is through setting up those kind of kickstarter crowdfunded translation projects I think there's one for Alfred Zorn Rattel's work at the minute you know stuff like that is maybe you know worth supporting not just because one wants to have a chunk of this stuff in English per se but because you know something like Peter Weiss's Aesthetics of Resistance people then read it collectively you know and it, it becomes a kind of focal point in the subject of reading groups and and so on it becomes a a, a bigger conversation um and dialogue and so on so you know I, I i think it's um good also just well it's good to affirm our europeanness perhaps at this moment and to extend our tentacles somewhere else that image of tentacles is a, good <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely one to handle. Thank you very much to Esther Leslie and Jen Kalea, and indeed to Anya Berger. I've been Tom Overton. This has been Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Julia Jakes is back next time. Thanks for listening.